The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Tonight I'd like to talk a little bit on the topic of <coughs> refuge and protection. When there's a passage in the canon where the Buddha talks about the duties of a student to a teacher and his teacher's duty to his students. And of course, as a student, you're supposed to study diligently, try to master the, what the teacher taught. Um, you're also supposed to attend to the teacher's needs, which is interesting. I mean, I, that was my life as a young monk in Thailand. Uh, for the teacher, though, the, the duties are some of the ones you would probably expect, that you want to make sure that you don't hold anything back from the student, and you once you make sure the student has mastered something, you have to test the student to make sure the student has mastered it. But one of the more interesting ones, um, and which is very unusual is, from our point of view, is that the teacher is supposed to offer protection in all directions mm-hmm. for the student. Now, this doesn't mean, like in the Buddhist case, he would go out and if anybody was beating you up, he would take them, you know, drive them away. What he's doing as a teacher is providing you with a kind of knowledge where you can defend yourself. That you take his teachings and you put them into practice. <clears throat> and by doing so, you protect yourself from dangers. Now, this was a common theme for all skills that were taught in that time, that they were designed to protect you from one danger or another. And the Buddha in particular has what he saw as <clears throat> three levels of danger that we all face in our lives. And he taught in ways that were supposed to help protect us from all three. Um, this is where the concept of refuge comes in. Um, that the protection that the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha provide protection on an external level, to protect you against the external dangers you face, on an internal level to protect you from the internal dangers that you present. I mean, we live in a dangerous world. <clears throat> we all know that, but we're also dangerous people. I mean, you think of some of the really stupid or harmful things that you could do. You know, when circumstances are okay, you might not even think of doing them, but when things get difficult, um, you might feel tempted, okay? A couple of precepts you might want to break just because things are difficult. And your ability to say no to that depends on the, the, the extent to which you've actually trained your mind. So there are these internal dangers that you've got to gain protection from. And then finally, there's just the, the dangers of aging, illness, and death. And no matter how skillful you are in your actions, if you haven't attained a higher level of safety, you're going to be subject to repeated birth, repeated death, all that comes from the fact that even skillful actions, ordinary skillful actions, can only give you a temporary refuge. And so there are these three levels of refuge that the Buddha was teaching. And when you look at the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, each of them is, you know, provides refuge on those, each of those three levels. Let's take the Buddha, for example. Um, the Buddha talked about himself as being an admirable friend and saying that, that having an admirable friend is the whole of the practice. Now, this, again, this doesn't mean he's going to do the practice for you, but it does mean that without someone like the Buddha as an example, you'd have no idea that this kind of life was possible, or this kind of practice was possible. But the fact that there was someone who set that example um, shows that okay, it is possible for human beings to find a happiness that's true and harmless and is totally reliable. And this goes against a lot of the messages we're getting from the world. You know, that true happiness is impossible, settle for a Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> <laughs> Buy whatever we're trying to sell, and that's all you really—that's the best you can get in life. You know, okay? <laughs> um, and there's so much of our society that's geared toward that is making us feel that okay, you know, putting the effort into finding a true happiness is not really reliable. 
that you can't, it's impossible to forget about it. I mean, the Buddha himself was told this when he was a young prince. You know, that, you know, the great people of the past, they accepted the fact that the best things in life are subject to aging, illness, and death, so why don't you enjoy your, your riches and enjoy your power? And he said, if those were the kind of people who you know, accepted that kind of stuff as the best human life has to offer, they're not worthy of respect. He wanted something that was not subject to these things. So the fact that we have someone who sets an example like that, that alerts us to the fact this might be a possibility. There were also teachings in his time that he would actually go out of his way to, to, to argue with. Now, the Buddha was not the kind of person who would seek out people to argue, ordinarily. But there were three types of teachings that he would go out and actually argue with people. One was that everything you experience is the result of past actions. And he'd say, if you, have the, if you hold to that, there's nothing you can do in the present moment to protect yourself from, say, suffering that might come from past actions. Everything is totally predetermined. There's no way that you can even tell yourself that something should or should not be done. And that's, he, said, he said, that leaves you unprotected. Now it's interesting that that's the point he focuses on. The sense that if you don't have a should or a should not, you're unprotected. And this relates to his, his analysis of what happens when we suffer. He says we ordinarily react to suffering in two ways. One is we're bewildered. Why is this happening to me? And the second one is we're searching for somebody's advice or someone can help provide, you know, show us the way out. <clears throat> and you think back to when you were a child and you first encountered pain. You had no idea what was happening. And this has been our relationship to pain pretty much all along. Is it, why is this pain happening to me? You know, we, may, we may know that with aging the body breaks down, but it's, still, it's a shock when it does this without asking permission. You know, so all of a sudden you find that you can't do the things that you used to do. There's a great line in the canon where the, the one monk is talking to a king and the king was saying that back when he was 20 years old, he felt like he had the strength of two men. But now, at 80 years old, he sometimes thinks of putting his foot in one place and it goes someplace else. You know? And again, it doesn't ask permission. And you, and you always wonder, well, why is this happening? There's a sense of bewilderment. Um, and if there's some way that you could act in a way that makes at least a guarantee that you not suffer from it, that's what offers you protection from the suffering. But if everything you experience is already predetermined, you have no protection. Similarly with the idea that everything you experience is, is the result of the act of a creative God. That the God has decided this is the way things are going to be and there's no changing it. You're, you're defenseless. A third teaching that the Buddha would argue with would be the teaching that um, everything is random. Happiness happens randomly. Pain happens randomly. There's really no pattern to these things that you can figure out how you might be able to counteract pain when it comes, or at least deal with the pain in a way that doesn't, that doesn't cause suffering. And again, if you have, there's no pattern, there's nothing you can learn. You can never learn from your experiences. And, th and you can't really say that, I did this yesterday and it's going to work again tomorrow. You're left defenseless. And these kind of teachings, the Buddha would actually go out and argue with people who were teaching that. Because you're saying you're teaching a really dangerous doctrine here. You're leaving people unprotected. I'm thinking another teaching that he might have argued with if it were around at his time was that everybody's basically good. You can trust your inner inner self, and that it's you know it's because of your horrible conditioning that you do stupid things. But if we, we could erase your social conditioning, you could trust yourself. And the Buddha, you know, you, you have to remember the Buddha's last teachings. What was the topic? Do you remember? Heedfulness. He didn't talk about mindfulness. He didn't talk about loving kindness just before he died. He talked about heedfulness. The heedfulness comes from the sense that there is danger out there, but that your actions can make a difference. 
And it's and not only dangers out there, but also dangers in the mind. I mean, you've got greed, you've got aversion, you've got delusion. If anyone believes in the innate goodness of human beings, look at what's going on in politics right now. Something really stupid's going on. And it's not necessarily innately good. Um, and so I think the Buddha would have probably argued against that one too, because that teaches people to be complacent. You know, trust your urges or trust your inner voice. Well, your inner voices, you've got lots of inner voices. Um, I don't know about you, but I've got lots of inner voices that <laughs> say stupid things sometimes. Um, you have to learn how to say no, recognize them and learn how to say no. So these are some outside influences that could actually be harmful to you if you acted on them. And so it's good to have the example of someone like the Buddha who gave this Dharma as a teaching that gives, lays out the fact that okay, you are responsible for your actions and your actions really can make a difference. And you can, on the one hand, take his advice as to what's skillful and unskillful and put it to the test in your life and then work out sort of the details on your own. Because a lot of the Buddhist teachings are pretty general. You know, he's got the five precepts and he's got um, what they call the ten guidelines about avoiding which include avoiding divisive speech, lying, um, harsh speech, and idle chatter, trying to develop skillful states of mind that are not overly greedy, that don't involve any ill will, and trying to develop right view. These are kind of basic principles. But you can learn through your own experience, okay, when you apply these principles in general, how they actually work in, in particular circumstances. And at the same time, you've got the example of the Buddha. I mean, this is one of the reasons why they, when they wrote the Pali Canon, they didn't just write down lists of teachings. They actually wrote, this is how the Buddha interacted with that person. This is how he dealt with this situation. He tells his life story about how he saw that the way he was acting was causing suffering, is not helping him in in, in more skillful. And so he'd stop and ask, well, is there some other way I can do this? And so he was constantly looking at his actions seeing the results and then adjusting his approach, adjusting his, his um, the way he was behaving to try to make it more and more skillful. And you can take that as, as an example. There are specific incidents in his life. There are two in particular that I find particularly um, impressive. One, of course, was when he realized that if he was going to find true happiness, he was going to have to go into solitude. He had to give up an awful lot. And he was willing to give it up and went out even though the rest of the family was not happy at all with what he was doing, he figured, this is really important. I want to find something that really is a genuine, a genuine form of happiness. And if I find it, I'll have something to bring back. And there's always that question about, you know, why did he leave his wife right after she'd had the kid? Um, and you have to remember, back in those days, one of the duties of a husband, if, if he didn't find that there was a satisfactory treasure to give the family at home, he would go abroad and go out and try to find the treasure and bring it back. And he said, this is the treasure I want to bring back to my family. And so he made a lot of sacrifices for that. Um, another incident which I find really inspiring was that you know, he had tried austerities for six years. And he got to the point where he said, okay, I have no, no, no one who, who outdid me in terms of what I was doing in terms of austerities. And we got so every time he went to the bathroom, he would faint. He was going without food. He was going without all kinds of things. And you know, what keeps a person going when you're doing that kind of thing, if not pride? You can imagine there's a huge amount of pride built up around this. And then after six years, he realized that this isn't working. Now, if he had been unwilling to let go of the pride, he would have said, well, I'll just put out my shingle as the greatest austerity person and you know, make a living that way. He said, no, this is not working. I've got to find something else. And he was willing to deal with the 
opprobrium of his followers who said, now this guy is going back to luxurious ways, we're going to leave him. And so he was able to give up that amount of pride and actually find the right way to practice. Um, and that's, that's, I think that's very inspiring, that many times we find ourselves set in a particular way and we know that we'll lose face if we, if we abandon it, but we realize what we're doing is not working. And here's the example the Buddha said, yeah, lose face. <laughs> Be willing to look stupid in the eyes of other people if you know what you're doing is wrong. Um, just as an aside, I hope we have time tonight for this, for asides. Um, there's a famous story in Thailand that has to do with the, the the example that the Buddha set, there was a king, I'll try to make this as short as possible, who had, um, the Burmese attacked the Thais and this king was going to go out and um, attack the Burmese camp and he was going to do a, a stealth operation on elephant one morning. <laughs> all, the elephant, all the army was going to go out on the elephants and attack the Burmese camp right at dawn when the Burmese were not prepared. And so he goes racing on his elephant, and when the dust settles, he's there in the Burmese camp, and he's the only one of the Thai army that's in the camp. And, you know, they could have very easily surrounded him, killed him, and that would have been it. But he sees the Burmese viceroy, and he says, okay, this is probably the last part time that we will have a chance to do duel with one another, one-on-one. Do you accept my challenge? And the viceroy got, okay, I'll accept your challenge. And so the two of them had a duel on elephant back, and the Thai king won, killed the Burmese viceroy. And um, just as he had killed the Burmese viceroy, the, the Thai army caught up with him and they dispersed the Thais, uh, dispersed the Burmese. If you go to Thailand, you will see this incident embroidered on pillows, um, placed on people's walls. I mean, this is the big event in Thai history. You know? And at any rate, that the king, when he got back to the capital, was really upset with his generals. I mean, he could have died because they didn't keep up with him. And so he decided he was going to kill off some of his generals just as a lesson, you know, that you had to be more up with the king. And so this very senior monk heard about this, and he said, I'd like to talk to you. Sent word into the king. And the king came out to see him. And he said, do you remember the story of the Buddha? When he gained his awakening, how many people were around him? All of his students had left. He was there alone. The reason to remember him is because he did this alone. The fact that your generals did not keep up with you allowed you to go down in Thai history as the king who beat the Burmese alone. Okay. Well, okay, the generals don't have to die. <laughs> so, so that's one way you can use the example of the Buddha to good purpose. Okay, when you're willing to lose face for the sake of a greater good. Okay. So that's one way in which the Buddha acts as a as an example, on, he's a refuge on an external level, and then he gives the gives the example of this is what a really good person does. A person who really does find true happiness, this is how they behave. He left the Dharma as the way to this is how you think to get there. These are the qualities you try to develop. Now the Buddha himself is famous for is traditionally associated with three qualities, which are wisdom, purity, and compassion. And he gives instructions on how you can develop those qualities yourself. Um, in terms of wisdom, he says it starts with asking the question, what when I do what will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? What when I do what will lead to my long-term harm and suffering? Now the wisdom there is in seeing, one, that this is going to depend on your actions. That you actually do have the chance to affect your happiness or your suffering. And two, long-term is more important than short-term. Um, I know one Pali scholar who said, this this is just too simplistic. 
And because everybody knows this, well, everybody knows this, but no, how many people act on it? You know, and it's the ability to act on this. That's where the wisdom comes in. That you really will weigh things as to what is going to be for long-term happiness and what's going to be only for short-term, and being willing to make the sacrifice. Um, in terms of compassion, there's an interesting story. I may have told it here before, but I'll tell it again. It's about King Basenadi and his wife Queen Malika. And one day they're up in the palace, just the two of them in the bedroom. And the king, at a tender moment, turns to the queen and says, Is there anyone you love more than yourself? Now, you know what he's expecting. <laughs> yes, Your Majesty, I love you more than I love Well, Queen Malika is no fool. She says, No, there's nobody I love more than myself. And what about you? Is there anybody you love more than yourself? No. <laughs> End of scene. So he goes down to see the Buddha. And, <laughs> and the Buddha says, You know, she's right. You could search the whole world and you never find anyone you love more than yourself. And at the same time, you have to remember that everybody else in the, in the world loves themselves just as much as you love yourself. And the conclusion he draws from that is that never cause anyone any harm. You can think about that, about that in two ways. One is that just in terms of, you know, you sympathize with other people's desire for happiness. You feel it this way, you can sympathize with them, that's what they want too. Secondly, you realize if your happiness depends on their harm, they're not going to stand for it. So if you really want a long-term happiness, you've got to take other people's happiness into consideration. This is the beginning of compassion, when you think about other people's happiness and as related to yours. Finally, the quality of purity, those instructions he gave to his son about the very beginning of the practice. When you look at your actions, you see, okay, what's my intention? What do I think is going to happen as a result here? If you foresee any harm, you don't do it. If you don't foresee harm, you go ahead with the action, but you watch the results while you're acting. Because some actions give the results, you don't have to wait for your next lifetime for them to give their results, they're going to give them right away. You spit in the wind and it comes right back at you. So you look at what your action, okay, if you're, you find that you're causing harm, you stop. No matter how much you wanted to do the action, you see this is causing harm, you stop. And this would apply, you know, you find yourself getting in a stupid argument, you stop. <laughs> <laughs> This isn't going nowhere, even if you lose face. Um, and then after the action, if, you, if it looked okay, you go ahead with the action. After the action, you review the long-term consequences. And if you realize that it did cause harm, you go and talk it over with someone who's further advanced on the path to get their perspective on it. And then you resolve you're not going to repeat that mistake ever again. And if you don't see that you caused any harm, then you can take joy in the fact that your training is continuing and then you can take... You know, continue in your training with a sense of joy and self-esteem. In other words, you are allowed to pat yourself on your back. In this way, he said, this is how people develop purity in their thoughts and their words and their deeds. And it's not just that you have good intentions, but you actually look at how well do I actually carry these things out. And if my good intentions, what I thought were good intentions, are causing harm, I go to back and reset. Check things out. Okay, what did I, where, where was my mistake? And so here the Buddha gives you the Dharma as guidance on how you develop those qualities of wisdom, compassion, and purity. And it's by taking that instruction in and actually acting on it, that's when you get to the next level of refuge, which is protection from yourself. In other words, you, you, know, you see that you have unskillful qualities, but you can keep the Dharma in mind and you've trained yourself so that you can act with, along in line with the Dharma when unskillful urges come up or difficult situations come up, 
You say, no, I'm going to stick with this. That's your protection. That's when you provide internal protection for yourself. And so this is what we're doing as we practice meditation. This is what we're doing as we practice the precepts. We're providing internal protection. You can think of it in terms of you know, your committee of your mind. You're changing the dialogue. You're changing the, the balance of power inside the mind to strengthen the skillful members and to, if you can't convert the unskillful members, you let them join the tea party and go someplace <laughs> else. Um, and so that's the internal that level of refuge. And, and I forgot to mention, of course, the Sangha. The Sangha, you know, we use the word Sangha very loosely here in America. Um, sangha in, traditionally, was two things. One was there was the monastic Sangha, the people who actually devoted themselves to the practice and maintain the teachings, and hopefully maintain the good example. And then there's the noble sangha, which can be either monastic or lay. People who've actually followed through the practice, attained awakening, and they can be an, you know, good examples for us as well. Again, as a, on an external example, they're the external refuge. As you see their qualities and you try to emulate them, that becomes your internal refuge. And then finally, there's the, what I call the third level of refuge. And when the Buddha talks about Nirvana. That, nirvana is not the only name he gives to the goal. He's got a list of about 20 names altogether. And many of them involve or, or revolve around the idea of safety. There's one that's called harbor, island, refuge, security, the secure. The, the fact being that if you can practice to the point of attaining a deathless happiness, because then you're totally secure. Aging, illness, and death can't touch the mind. There'll be no suffering at all. And this, in this way, the Buddha has gone beyond his promise to protect you in all directions. I mean, the deathless goes beyond all directions. Which is the name, by the way, of the new book that's out on the table. Um, but this, this is the protection that protects you from, even from the limitations of skillful actions. I mean, skillful actions can take you so far. But even because they themselves are impermanent, they can't provide a total happiness. Aside from the actions of the noble path. And that's, there's something special about the noble path. Even though it doesn't cause the deathless, it can take you there. It's like the road to the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been approached the Grand Canyon from the South Rim, you know the road to the Grand Canyon does not look at all like the Grand Canyon. Uh, but it gets you there. And it doesn't cause the Grand Canyon to be. The Grand Canyon was there a long time before the road was built through. But you follow the road and you get there. And once you got there, okay, then, then you're totally secure. And this way the Buddha is you know, providing his duty, fulfilling his duty as a teacher in providing that kind of refuge. So when you look at the practice that you're doing, you know, think, try to think of it in terms of the dangers you're protecting yourself. You know, outside dangers, you know, the bad examples, the, the, the kind of teachings that would make you complacent. You've got to put those aside because you've got a better example. And then for the internal refuge, you see like you've got greed, aversion, and delusion, all these other unskillful qualities. But you've got skillful qualities as well. What you've got to learn to do is strengthen the skillful qualities so they can protect you against the temptation to follow through with the unskillful ones. And you do this by practicing the Dharma. The Buddha has lots of teachings about in, in using the, exam, you know, the image of a fortress, the image of a protector, the image of a protective charm, to talk about the different ways that, that the aspects of the practice really do provide security. Um, mindfulness as a protector, he, he has this image of a fortress out there, and mindfulness is the gatekeeper. And here you have to remember, his meaning of mindfulness was not just being aware, it was remembering what you need to remember. About what's skillful and what's not skillful. 
And in this case, the gatekeeper knows, okay, who's allowed in the forest and in the fortress and who's not allowed in the fortress. Well, I heard one person who, who was trying to advance the idea that mindfulness is just kind of accepting awareness. He came across this example. He says, well, all the, all the gatekeeper has to do is just sit there and that's going to keep the bad people from coming, even approaching the, the fortress. And I think I'm thinking, it's, you know, it's like those police dummies they have. Yeah. And you know, you see it the first time and you are, you're taken aback. And then you realize, this is a dummy, <laughs> and it does, it's no longer effective, you know. <laughs> and if that's what your mindfulness is doing, it's going to work once, maybe, but it's not going to work all the time. So you need mindfulness to remember, okay, what's skillful and what's not skillful, so that you know who to let into the fortress and who not. And then the army inside the fortress is your effort. Um, what was interesting for him, discernment is a plastered wall. The fortress had a plastered wall. Well, now, now, why do you think it would be plastered? So you can't get a toehold or a foothold on the plaster. The enemy can't climb up the wall. So you've got to have your discernment in such a way so that you can protect yourself so that greed, aversion, and delusion don't get toeholds into your mind. So the Buddha uses these examples of you know, soldiers protecting you, of being inside a fortress, um, the qualities that protect you. They basically come down to three main types, which is qualities of mind, um, the way you live your livelihood, you want to lead, lead your livelihood in a way that's not causing anybody harm. And then finally, developing skills that you can be helpful to the society around you, helpful to your family, helpful to whatever group you belong to. These things protect you. you, know, if, you if you're helpful to the group and then something happens, of course, they're going to come and be happy to help you in turn. And it's interesting to think of that, okay, learning these skills, this is a kind of protection. So I think it's important that you realize that we are faced with dangers both outside and inside, but what the Buddha offers here is a type of protection against these things. If you take his teachings, look at his example, look at the example of the Noble Sangha, internalize that example, and follow through to the point where you, you, know, you can find for yourself that what the Buddha was talking about really is true. There really is a deathless happiness and it really is safe. Because then you've developed the kind of safety that the Buddha was offering. That's why he became Buddha, because he wanted not only to be, escape danger himself, but he wanted to provide this as a teaching for anyone who was interested. So those are some of my thoughts on the topic of refuge and protection. I wonder if you have any questions or comments? I gave the same talk in New York a couple months back, and it was five minutes before there was a question. <laughs> Do you want to talk about anything else? first question, the one that kind of broke the ice, let's see, what was the icebreaker? There's some questions about the idea of the Sangha. That, you know, the, the Buddha actually had a term for a group like this, it's called a Barisa, P-A-R-I-S-A, which means basically people who follow the teachings. And it's a group, they get together as a group, basically. Because, you know, it's one thing to look for 
to the noble sangha, for examples, where people have been well trained as a refuge. It's another thing to think you're going to get refuge in the person sitting next to you in, in the meditation hall. Because we get all kinds of people coming in. You know. But for refuge, you want someone who can give you a reliable example. So traditionally, Sangha just was for the monastic Sangha and then for the noble Sangha. And the monastic Sangha is not necessarily always the best kind of an example, but at the very least there's a group that has a kind of a, what you would call an, an apprenticeship that gets carried on from generation to generation, which provides a context. Because um, you know, when, when you look at a document like the, like the Pali Canon, it was never meant to be used in isolation, just as a book. It was part of the teachings that a community passed on as part of their life as a community. And so it's good to have the examples of this is, this is the etiquette of someone who practices the Dharma and this is the way a community should live together. And they provide, it, they provide an example that way. And then whichever layer of monastic people become awakened, okay, they become a, an even better example. But there are a lot of things that individuals cannot show as an example of. I've been working recently on the monks' roles. <clears throat> I did a book several years back, and I'm going through and basically revising the book. And the more I, the more I live this life as a monastic, the more I realize it was a very well-designed community. I mean, it's basically everything that would give any indication of what social background you came from would be erased, so that people would live as equals. And that even though there was a hierarchy within the community on certain issues, there were other issues there was no hierarchy at all. Everybody had equal votes. And it was it just, it, and it's a well-organized well community. And John Sawat, one of my teachers, made the point one time, he says that the fact that we have a monastic order is not just for the monks, it's for the lay people too. That by interacting, and, and the Buddhist monks are not, as you can see, we don't live in cloisters and run away from the world. We're there interacting with the lay people and providing an example. This is how people should interact, how they show respect to one another as they're practicing the Dharma and give support to one another. One another. Yes? I've heard the, con um, the concept recently about that some of the behavioralists are talking about, about moral license, mm -hmm. that once you <clears throat> decide if you decide to do something to improve yourself, you in fact may be more likely to do something in the future that's bad for yourself just by the fact that you've just made this decision in your mind to try to do something better. Hmm. And it's a it's sort of a, a weird concept that's involved in willpower. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that the um, idea of having an example is even more important in light of that. Right. That you have somebody who's really setting something visual or experiential that you can use to help you overcome that dilemma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's a lot of times our, our ideas of improvement are just sometimes just our ideas. We haven't really tested them. If you see someone who's been on the path and tested this kind of thing. Um, and they help you with dilemmas of willpower as well. Yeah, because you see, because so-and-so did this, and they can, one, they can give you advice, this is how they did it. And then secondly, okay, you can see the results down the line. This, this was a choice that this person made, and this is how it worked out as, as it went further down the line. Yeah. 
There's nothing really wrong with willpower <laughs> if it's well-directed. I was reading someone recently saying that the whole problem with putting a lot of effort into the practice means that you have to be highly motivated. And when you're highly motivated, there has to be a very strong sense of self, which is bad. Okay? And no, it's not bad. In fact, the Buddha himself talks very f frequently about using your sense of self in a skillful way to motivate yourself. Um, there's, a, there's a passage on three ways of motivating yourself in the practice. One is, he says, your sense of self, the sense of the world, and your sense of the Dharma. Your sense of yourself is, I'm doing this because I really do want to find true happiness. If I abandon this practice, it shows I don't really love myself. And so that's why you can skillfully use your sense of self to keep on the path. The Buddha was never averse to using a sense of self skillfully. He never said there is no self, but he just said you've got to learn, learn how to use this really skillfully and learn how to put that away. I mean, you need that to keep you motivated on the path. When you reach the goal, you're not going to need that sense of self anymore. It's like that image of the raft. You take the raft across the river, then you don't need to carry the raft around. So you put it aside at that point. Second way of motivating, this is one of my favorite ones, using the world to motivate yourself as you practice. It says, in the world there are people who can read minds. How would I feel if they were reading my mind right now? <laughs> and then finally, using the Dharma to motivate yourself. Says, this is a really excellent Dharma. It was founded by someone who is really admirable. If I don't practice it now, I don't know when I'm going to have the chance to practice it again. So, so. yes. Uh, we're often trying to set good intentions, but uh, I find that uh, a source of an, an internal source of harm is uh, intentions that are underneath the, the conscious radar, mm -hmm. and I need to root them out. Right. Uh, and do you have any suggestions? I mean, other, I think uh, meditating, you know, just trying to stay alert mm -hmm. helps, but uh, there, is there more? Well, the meditation is one of the best ways of alerting yourself to you know, these other voices that are down there that are sort of really running the show. Um, but then you have to be very conscious to try to bring that level of awareness into your daily life. It's not going to be automatic. Some people just turn that off as they leave the meditation, and then they turn it back on when they meditate, and it's, it's a very bifurcated kind of life. And you have to say, okay, I'm going to try to bring this level of sensitivity into my life. One thing that I found really helpful is thinking of the mind as a committee. And so when something really unskillful comes up in the mind, it's not a sign that you're a bad person and you have to hide it from yourself. It's just, look, that's one member of the committee. But I've got other members, you know. And you, and you start having a dialogue where there was no dialogue before. So that, that's one thing I would, I would suggest. And that makes it a lot easier to live with the fact that there are some pretty unskillful things in there. Because just as the Buddha didn't say you were not, in, he didn't say that you were inherently good. He also didn't say you were inherently bad. Because either way is, is debilitating in the practice. If you think you're inherently good, you say, "Well, I'll just whatever comes up, I, I learn how to trust." If you think you're inherently bad, nothing you will ever do will ever get you right. You have to depend on some outside help to do the work for you. Whereas having a committee where you have both the good and the bad members, you learn how to you know, change the politics inside. <laughs> Tan Jeff, mm -hmm. I'm curi I was curious about the um, 
comment you made about um, getting into arguments or getting into discussions that seemed, I don't know if you said silly or... They're not going anywhere. Not going anywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I've certainly been able to recognize sometimes when that happens. One, mm -hmm. one time I was challenged by somebody who said, I, I, when I had mentioned Buddhism and the Buddhist path, that they, they said something along the lines of, well, was Jesus a liar or was he who he said he was? You know, she was like a trap. To, yeah, yeah. You know, like, weren't there some other alternatives, like that Jesus didn't know? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, I just responded by, I see that as a trap, and I don't want you to fall into it. Yes. <laughs> but th there's other times when people say things, and I realize that um, what gets triggered for me is a sense of insecurity. Like, mm -hmm. well, you know, I... Uh, I feel pretty strongly about this, but I can't really uh, articulate, articulate it. it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, maybe you could say a little bit more of how, how do you respond in those... T well, it's hard for me to imagine you ever not being articulate. But if you <laughs> were to put have, yourself I in my moments. Place, I'm, I'm, I, sometimes people do things that leave me speechless, yes. I know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but it's, it's, it's... I mean, I think there are times when having those arguments, even when I don't exactly no can be useful and other times when it's just like I'm just yeah well if you if you go into it with the idea well let's explore this issue together and say these are some of my concerns and um, if you feel the other person is willing to actually get it and get into a mutual exploration that can be actually very productive um, the Buddha has some guidelines though for people that are not worth talking to and basically it's um, it comes down to two types one is people who really don't even know how to conduct an argument properly they're just too dumb. And the other is they're too devious. Um, they, you know, they know the proper forms and everything, but they're going to try to work their way around them. And you know, they're not there to arrive at the truth. They're there to beat you. And when it comes like that, you say, okay, unless it's a matter of life and death, you say, okay, I'm just not available for this argument. And you may look dumb. Again, it's, it's a time to lose face, maybe. This issue came up just this last weekend when we were having a course in, uh, on the book Skill and Questions. There's a whole section there on arguments and debates. And talking about how, well, sometimes you know what you, what you believe is right, but this is not the person to tell it to. and They're not going to accept it no matter what. And it's not that you say, well, we'll have to live together. We have to say many, there are many levels of truth, there are many types of truth, and maybe their perspective is right. and Maybe they're really dead wrong. But there are times when you say, I just cannot argue with this person. And you do have to say, what's my purpose in holding on to this view? Is it to beat the other person? Especially with right view about the, t the Dharma. We're not here to beat other people. We're here to practice to get rid of our own unskillful qualities so that we can actually put an end to suffering. That's what the purpose of right view is. It's not out there to bang somebody over the head. And of course, in the back of your mind is politics right now. Um, and as a monk, I can say I'm not involved, but um, what you've got to do is, okay, I'm, I'm holding this view because I, you know, what is my purpose in holding on to this view? When is it appropriate time to express the, the view, and when is it more appropriate just to be quiet? You learn how to read this situation. Because the holding to a view can be a kind of karma. And if you come across as self-righteous, you've lost your cause. Mm -hmm. This question over here, I'm just curious, in your experience, um, 
what kind of impact does this practice have on physical healing and health, physical health? I, I find it's, for me, it's been very helpful physically. Um, especially you know, the breath meditation that I was teaching just now. When you're working with the energies in the body and you're learning how to make sure that all the organs of the body are well nourished and parts of the body that tend to get shut off for one reason or another for a physical injury or a psychological trauma or something, you can begin to open it back up again. And the more calm the mind is, on the one hand, the more sensitive it's going to be to the needs of the body. And also you kind of create a greater level of energy that can sustain you through times when you really do need a lot of endurance in order to finish a particular project. And even and even if it you know if you've got some serious illness where the, you know the breath meditation is not going to cure the illness, it puts the mind in a much better place, so the mind is not adding on to the problems of the illness. Mm-hmm. And I had a second question about um, you know more about livelihood that doesn't harm because mm-hmm. that's depends on what, what if you're already on a path like you're a lawyer of some kind. Well, you can be you can be a good lawyer. You know? <laughs> I was talking though last night to someone who was whose brother-in-law is a lawyer, and he's a lawyer for an insurance company. And they were sitting over dinner, and the, the brother-in-law was talking about how there was this one woman who had had some sort of kitchen explosion, and you know, destroyed half of her face. And uh, this, the lawyer was working for the insurance company, and, and basically beat the woman. And the friend, my friend here, said. Well, I'm happy for you. <laughs> that's, that there are those kinds of lawyers, but you don't want to be that kind of lawyer. I mean, there are good lawyers. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of you know public defenders and other people who are you know really trying to do the best they can. But again, you have to. I mean, there are some some occupations, you know, child trafficking and that kind of stuff. Okay, that you stay away from that entirely. There are other occupations. <laughs> Where you say, okay, uh, there's, there's, there are honest and dishonest ways of, of conducting this particular kind of occupation. I want to make sure I'm doing it the honest way, the helpful way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Would you share a little bit about your own uh, decisions? about pursuing a Buddhist path and ultimately uh, choosing to become a monk? Okay. okay. Um, I first found out about Buddhism from a friend who had gone over to Thailand. He was an ex- exchange student. He spent two weeks as a novice. And, it, and I'd never heard the Four Noble Truths. I didn't know anything about Buddhism at the time. This is when I was in high school. And I don't know, just hearing about the Four Noble Truths got me intrigued that there'd be a religion based on just that issue, overcoming suffering. I thought that was really fascinating. And learned more about it in college. I took a comparative religion course and they actually had a a winter term. This was at Oberlin. They had a winter term where they brought a Thai monk and a Japanese monk to teach meditation. So I signed up for that and liked it a lot. And I said, this is a really important skill. I really want to learn this. Better. And so I, I got a fellowship to go to study and uh, teach in Thailand. And so in my spare time, I was looking for a good meditation teacher. Finally found one. And it was more than I expected. I mean, he was really impressive. Um, it wasn't just a meditation technique, but there was something about him as a person, quite a lot of really fine qualities I really admired. And it was largely through his example that I finally decided, okay, I think I'd like to try being a monk. 
to really give myself to this rather than just you know, having it on the side. And so it took a while for me to kind of, there was a lot of back and forth before I finally said, well, here's my one chance. I've met, I found a really good teacher. How many people have this opportunity? And if I don't take it, I'm going to regret it down the line. So I took it. And I haven't really regretted the choice. Any other particular details you want to? <laughs> um, it's you know it's a rare opportunity to speak to someone who's chosen uh, mm-hmm. to become a monk, and so uh, as you thought through, as you were going through that process, mm-hmm. especially of making that decision to commit mm-hmm. yourself, mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did you? It, I'm curious to know a little bit about kind of how did you think through what you might have to let go of? Let go of. As well yeah, as how a you lot of overcame some of yeah. those challenges. Yeah. Um, a lot of it, for one thing that was really helpful for me was, if I hadn't gone this way, I probably would have gone into academia. And after meeting my teacher, I, the, the program that took me to Thailand took me back to Oberlin for a year and gave me a free year of education at Oberlin. And you know, I was looking at all the professors, and nobody looked happy. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I kept thinking about my teacher sitting there in his little hut back in Thailand, perfectly happy. Um, and he just seemed to, you know, that seemed to be the kind of ideal that I wanted to follow more. Um, I did also have the opportunity, I went to the American Academy of Religion. They had a conference in Chicago. And so I wanted to check it out because, you know, I think, well, I probably might want to teach comparative religion. Let's see what it's like, what's, what are the people like. And they had a seminar on Thai Buddhism. So I went and sat in the seminar, and there were, what, 12 people who came to the seminar? And there were three professors who got up, and they all talked about their own little pet little projects, none of which had anything to do with the other ones. And I don't know if you ever read any Jean Piaget, French uh, psychologist. He did a lot of study of tra- child development, and he had done a diary of his daughter's intellectual development from age, you know, from the egg on up, basically. And, um, <laughs> well birth on up. <laughs> and he, there was one particular story that he told about there, this phase that she went through when she was, when I forgot the age she was, but every time she had a bowel movement, you could not flush the toilet until she had made up a story. She had named each one of the pieces. <laughs> and there was a little story she told about it. Then you could flush it down. You know? <laughs> and that image went through my head <laughs> as I was listening to these academic papers. <laughs> About three, yes. <laughs> and it was soon after that that I made the decision. I'm going to go back to Thailand. <laughs> yes. What do you think about the controversy uh, in the Buddhist community about having women ordained? I think it would be good if we had good women teachers for women to ordain and practice under. And my concern is, is how are you going to get those good women teachers? That's my, that's my main concern. I've had some, I have some female students who would like to ordain, but they went and visited the various communities and they came back and they said they could not study with those people. That, that's, that's the main difficulty. Is that, I mean, this is one of the things you have with the living tradition is that there are you have monks who trained with monks who trained with monks who are all well trained. 
course, you don't have that yet in the women's community. And I don't know how it's going to be brought about. It's very difficult. I mean, you've got, in, you've got inspiring individuals like Kinana Yon in Thailand. Have you ever read any of her stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Machi Gao. And they, 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 you know, they stand out as really excellent individuals, but none of them were able to establish a community that lasted more than a generation. I mean, Gyananiyo has a center that's still there, but it's not a place to practice anymore, really. But if the women were ordained, they could begin this process. Yeah, yeah but in the meantime, you're experimenting with the women. <laughs> the chicken and the egg. And um, what you've got, I've, one of the communities I actually visited and talked to the women, and it's the woman, the woman who was in charge would ordain, you know, two or three years, had a new student who was only there for a couple months. And the woman who had been there for three years was a very gentle and kind of timid kind of woman, whereas the non- young student coming back was very self-confident. And you could see, okay, the student was going to take over. Because there's not that sense, okay, the teacher is well-trained, so I will submit to the teacher. So the dynamic is difficult. I guess for me, a lot of in my time with the John Furong was it was not easy to, okay, he would tell me that I had to do something. and. It really went against the grain, but I figured, okay, he's trained. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Yes. Um, sometimes when I read Buddhist books, they talk about um, everyday life of trying to be mindful all the time, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's the most skillful way of approaching things, or if perhaps when you're in your everyday life, kind of having two planes of thought, kind of being mindful, and then kind of your normal, maybe analytical working in the situation. Okay, well, it, 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 a lot of it depends on how you define mindfulness. Yeah. And mindfulness basically means keeping in mind what is appropriate to be done right now. And if you're working at work, okay, you want to be keeping in mind what's your job. But it's also good to have kind of a foundation, a kind of a physical foundation to settle, keep you centered at the work. Because even when you're focused on your job, there's still going to be the random thoughts going off in other places. And so take that energy that goes into the random thoughts and put it into having a sense of, okay, I'm with my body right now. And stay with the breath. And that, that helps keep you, actually, you're, you're more fo- focused on the work with less, less of the distraction. And there's a greater sense of physical well-being that comes with that, especially if you learn how to work with the breath energies like I was talking just now. You can sense, okay, you're building up tension, relax it. If someone comes in and says something stupid in the office, relax the energy. Yeah. <laughs> and as long as you're more intense with your energy, you come back at the end of the day and you have a lot more energy left over. But so it's not just being aware, 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 aware. It's, you've got a set of tools for dealing with attention. You've got a set of deals with dealing with the part of the mind that tends to go off and get distracted. Okay, you can pull it back in and have a sense of well-being right here. It's a lot easier to stay centered. Any last comments? Okay, it's time. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>